0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to introduce you to a podcast we love. It's all about women rising up, called Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller. This season, Lauren will introduce you to quote-unquote radical people who are transforming the systems as we know them. From legendary activists like Gloria Steinem to policymakers and tech entrepreneurs— You'll hear honest, powerful stories of how change gets made and come away with new ways of responding to problems the world throws at you. To hear how women rise up and get radical, search for Inflection Point with Lauren Schiller wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Okay, let's get to the show. Take a second to think about all the people you know. The friends, family, partners, co-workers, mentors, etc. Now think about all the people that they know. And then all the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web. web.
1: web. web. web, of web of women. Welcome
0: back to Web of Women, the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. I started this season off by talking to four women I know from different parts of my life. Last episode, I interviewed a new connection, Dinora Gatacho, a self-proclaimed democracy ninja. If you missed it, go back and check it out. This episode begins the next layer of the web. Now, each of the women I interviewed gets to pick someone from her life who she wants to talk to. First up, my friend Sosie Bacon decided to talk to her mom, Kira Sedgwick. If you missed my interview with Sosie and want to listen to that first, go back to episode one.
1: So, I'm Sosie Bacon, and I'm talking to my mom, Kira
2: Sedgwick.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, I'm an actress, and a uh, producer. You are, mom?
2: A mudda. <laughs> <Amada. laughs> a um I'm an actor and a director and a producer. And
1: we are actually right now in Kauai on vacation for the holidays. Okay, so mom, can you first sort of just summarize your life story fast? Wow, <laughs> Wow! really? More like where okay. where you were I from.
2: I was born yeah. in New York. You're in Manhattan? In Manhattan. Okay. And I grew up mostly in Manhattan, although there was a short stint in Croton on the Hudson. I went to school in New York, auditioned for my first play in eighth grade, and it was Fiddler on the Roof. And I didn't really know how much I was in love with performing until I did that. I auditioned and I remember singing Matchmaker for my audition and my English teacher, who was also the drama teacher, Mr. Whitman, said, you sing like a bird. And no one's ever said that since, by the way. And I got a really great part. I got the part of Seidel and Fiddled on the Roof and I had an incredible time and it was a really life-changing moment for me. I had been kind of not so happy and suddenly it made me really happy and then i studied acting until i mean all the way through but i started to work professionally when i was 16. Um, or were you
1: still going to school?
2: I was still going to school. I auditioned for soap opera on a whim. A friend of my mother's was a manager and he thought, you know, just for fun in practice. And I did. And then I got called back and then we had to make us an actual like screen test contract. And, um, they agreed to let me stay in school and let me go to work late. Only maximum of three days a week and they would have to pick me up at school. And my mother made all these provisions and she thought for sure that based on all those restrictions, that there was no way they'd hire me, but they hired me. What? So I did that for about a year and a half and then Did you I,
1: wait? So they've actually picked you up in like a car and brought you?
2: Yeah, picked me up at school. And was was it, did you like doing soap operas or like, did you think it was good practice or not? Oh, I definitely thought it was good practice and it was really good practice. I mean, you have to learn your lines and you have to know where you're, Mm -hmm. you have to be a professional. Like they don't care if you're 16. You have to, you're a professional. So, and they treat you that way. Um, And you got paid. And I got paid. Exactly. (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) Yeah. And then I kept acting after that and just like always... Just acting, acting, waiting for jobs, waiting for jobs. I got married really young. I had two kids, me, <laughs> <laughs> one, uh, one girl, and one boy, and I started to produce when I was twenty-seven, and that was sort of like, kind of came to me. Also, like, what on, was the first thing you produced? on a whim? Something exactly. called Losing Chase mm. that we did for Showtime. That was I hired Kevin to dad to um, direct. My brother said to me, I read a script of a friend of mine's, do you want to read it? And I read it and I loved it. And so I told her that if she would let me try to see if I could get it made and we got it made for Showtime and Kevin directed it and I starred in it and so did uh, Helen Mirren. And that was really a big thing for us to get Helen, but she won every award that she could possibly win for that at the time. And wait, one quick question. Yeah, yeah. When did you leave home? When did I leave home? Uh, Literally or figuratively? Um, I left home when I was 19 to go to, well, first I went to uh, Sarah Lawrence College when I was 18 for, like, a semester. And then I moved out to California just for a year, but that was, I guess, my official leaving home to get my own place Mm -hmm. when I was 19. Okay, got it. And you moved to L.A.? I moved to L.A.
1: Which was? How was that? It was was lonely.
2: Lonely and (laughs) crazy. And, like, I enrolled at USC because I just felt like I didn't want to just sit around and wait for the phone to ring, Mm -hmm. even though I was auditioning like a mad woman all the time. Right. I, you know, kind of didn't really commit to any of it. I just, my only thing I was committed to was, was working as an actor. So, like... I would leave every weekend if I could to go visit my boyfriend in Seattle, which cost me a lot of money. I don't know why I did it, but whatever. Uh, actually in Portland. And I, I, hard, I didn't even try to make friends. Like people would try to be my friend and I'd be like, I'm too busy to be, you know, have friends. It was crazy. It was like really <laughs> insane.
1: In, in, in going back, it's sort of hard to focus in. But as of now, what do you feel like drives you?
2: I think what drives me is the need to keep telling stories and to move people and to help people to empathize with other humans. I feel like that's such a huge part of my mandate as an actor, certainly, and even as a producer and as more of a, you know, the center of the storytelling, either producing or directing. I feel like, you know, I want to do projects that. That means something to me personally, but also have some kind of deeper meaning and, and messaging, whether it's, you know, that we're all connected, even though we sometimes feel so separate or that we need to forgive ourselves in order to move on. Or that we need to take care of our environment, whether that's taking care of your family environment or taking care of our society as a whole. I feel like we're all responsible for the kind of work we put out there into the world. And that's become a huge part of why I do what I do. I mean, I always say about acting, and I feel this way about the other parts of my professional life now as well, is that I love the fact that human beings get to feel compassion for one another. Um, that's something that at least we don't think animals feel, although although they say that the killer whale has a lot of compassion. Um, and there are probably other animals, but they have actual proof of that. Uh, and I just think that we need to exercise that anytime we can.
1: hmm Yeah, I feel like whenever we watch a movie together, like ever since I was younger, the sort of... The parts that you point out and the parts that I've started to point out based on probably being around you are like the very small human moments that make us all alike that a an actor can sort of achieve. And it's interesting be, that, that an actor can portray and then it can make you feel like you're not alone in some sort of a reaction you might have. Like, it's interesting. Last night we watched um, Vice and one of the, the best moments I thought, and I don't know if you agree with me, but it was when one of his daughters was talking about how she wasn't going to be able to
2: win her election. What was it, governor? She was afraid to, yeah, uh, I think no, um, was, she's was a representation representative yeah, of Congress. Exactly, by the way,
1: spoiler alert, but just, you know, you can skip forward <laughs> if you don't want to spoil. The point is, she basically needed to give up her like long standing opinion on gay marriage based on her sister being gay, to in order to win. She was kind of looking to her dad to give her the okay to say that she didn't support gay marriage in order to win. And he sort of just does like this little tiny nod. And then I can't even describe it, but Amy Adams does this thing as Lynn Cheney where she has this sort of like, resigned f- smile. Like, yes, 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 yes. That's what you need to do. That, that That's right. That's what you need to do. But you can tell it's so hard for them, but they still choose to do it. And they're sort of so intent on winning that they're. you can tell they're giving up a huge part of what they believe in. And anyways, my point is Amy Adams' face in that moment was just so human. It's these little moments that That string together in a film, whether or not it's the directing or the acting, whoever's portraying it, it makes us feel connected in some way to what we're seeing on the screen. And I think that's why filmmaking can be so important and why it's so global. You know, everybody watches movies and everybody feels something when they watch them. What was your process of becoming a director?
2: There was a book that I bought in 2007 called Story of a Girl, a young adult novel about a girl. (laughs) You meet her at um, 13, but most of the movie takes place when she's 16, three years later. And I had tried to make it as a feature for years and years and years, for like 10 years. And I couldn't get it made as a feature, as a producer. Uh, I was not attached to direct. And the opportunity to make the movie came up. And I realized that, and actually it was Dad that who had been you know, saying to me for the, the recent past, mm-hmm. you have to direct, why aren't you directing? It doesn't make any sense, you'd be so good at it. And mm-hmm. I had always thought I'll never direct. I mean, if you listen to, if you look at old interviews, I literally say I will never direct <laughs> because I was so intimidated by it. And I felt like I had worked with so many great directors and so many bad directors mm-hmm. and the difference was vast. And um, cavernous, and I felt like I didn't want to be a bad director. So (laughs) so when the opportunity came to actually make the movie, I thought, well, if there's one movie I could direct, it would be this thing that I've been living with and has been in my heart and in my cell and in my blood for 10 years. And so I decided to direct it, and that opportunity came to me.
1: Did you ever feel like growing up when you grew up and being, you know, a woman— ever discouraged you from directing like some sort of internalized fear based on your totally. gender. Oh
2: yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of internalized fear, but also a lot of internalized uh, misogyny. I yeah. mean, I think that I I think that I definitely made myself small for a really long time in order to appease and make comfortable the men who ran my business. Yeah. I mean, there's just no question about it. I was always slowly taking the reins more and more, but really, there's no question that I did it I wouldn't say reluctantly, but i I took power carefully and mm-hmm. making sure that everyone was okay with it, and that it was something that I you know quote unquote deserved or had worked for. And I think that I was definitely scared to direct. I didn't work with a lot of female directors. I I mean, I could count on half a hand how many female directors I right. I had worked with. And I think that there's no question that if you don't see that reflected back to you, you don't think of it right. first or second or third or fourth. You think, yeah. well, producer's okay. It's behind the scenes. But director, you've really got to be an ass kicker or you've really got to be someone who's willing to just like be front and center and make big decisions. And right. the truth was is that... I, had, I was making big decisions. I just... I definitely think that that had a big part yeah. in my waiting for such a long time.
1: Yeah. Internalized misogyny is so weird because it's like... <laughs> it can be, like, directed at ourselves. Totally. Which is so oh, yeah hard. I mean, I feel like also the thing about female directors is that there's vulnerability in the leading, in your leadership. Yeah. And at the end of the day, and especially in terms in, with working with actors... It's so important to have vulnerability in in leadership. It would be great if there was more. So anyways, okay. Who do you consider to sort of be your community? And how do your political views sort of relate to your community's political views?
2: <laughs> um, I think of my community as you know fellow storytellers. I think, but I also think of my communities as you know people. Oh, I guess when I really think about the friends that I have, most of them are in some kind of an art form. Arts, yeah, are in some of the arts, whether it's performing arts or they're writers or they're musicians. I, I mean, I have such old old friends that didn't necessarily start that way, but have now ended up there. Right. Like I, I have an old friend who is a teacher, but even that I think is a creative, profe- a very creative profession, actually. So I think that is my community are probably artists. And how does that reflect my political views? I mean, look, as somebody whose mandate it is to walk around in other people's shoes and help other people to empathize with other people's circumstances that are different from theirs, hopefully. I think that I'm a total lefty, liberal, you know, uh, bleeding heart liberal, a tree hugger, all of it. I mean, I feel responsible as a mother. I think I'm responsible for my children. Hence, I'm just responsible for Mother Earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just no question about it. And I would encourage the people that represent me to feel the same. Um, to think not only about their generation, but the next seven generations, certainly the next two. <laughs> and I also believe there should be economic parity. I mean, I would love for people to have what they need to be able to, you know, get ahead, to work hard. I have poor racism and bigotry in all its forms. And that absolutely makes me a, a left-leaning, extremely liberal person.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's funny because our family was so, we grew up, not only was everyone's political views very left, we also just grew up around so many different kinds of people just from you guys being in the arts from a very young age, from growing up in Manhattan. It's like, you can't avoid these things. You know, our family is many colors and like many types of people and, you know, straight, gay, whatever, bi, everybody's just got their own thing. And so it's interesting to me, I almost feel like I'm at some sort of an advantage yeah, in this time period right now. And which is great because I see some people around me struggling, you know, to understand trans people. And it's like, to me, that was just something that was always understood and was always like given to us from a very young age as a, a positively, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting when I see how behind some people are because of their families, unfortunately, and just because like the neighborhoods they grew up in, you know, Right. and what they were surrounded with. So it's like I also feel like while it frustrates me to no end when I don't when I see people who are not able to understand what I'm trying to. Put across in the world, I also have to remember where they came from and their background, and I feel like we not, we need so much compassion for yes. people who don't understand this stuff now yes. because we don't know where they came from, we don't know what their communities told them yes. about politics growing up, and we don't i I never used to take into consideration how hard it must be to come up with your own ideas about politics and social stuff mm-hmm. and you know pull away from what your family pushed on you. So anyways, it's just interesting to think about.
2: Yes. What main issues drive you to to vote? There are so many, but I definitely, my concern about what's happening to this planet environmentally has been engaged from the time I had my first kid, selfishly. I became very educated and aware about exactly what global warming was what it looked like what our addiction to fossil fuel was doing to this planet so i'm consumed with that um and you're really involved in working on changing that right i'm i'm doing what i can with what (laughs) i got as dad would say i mean i feel like Sometimes I feel intermittently, incredibly hopeless. And then sometimes I feel energized and hopeful. I definitely think that we're at the bottom. Um, what are some of the things that possibly can only go up from here? I am on the Global Leadership Council of the NRDC, which only means that I get to be on phone calls that give us ways in which we can be proactive. And I've gone to to Washington, D.C. and spoken to senators when there was an actual bill on the table in the early 90s, or actually maybe it was the early 2000s. A Republican senator as and a uh, Democratic senator had a cap-and-trade bill that was on the floor. And we went there to try to influence minds uh, to vote for the bill. It died in the house, but that felt proactive. I am extremely aware of the things I buy, the packaging I use, plastic. I refuse to the for the most part single-use plastic, which means that I won't get takeout if it's in plastic. I bring my own containers, I bring my own reusable coffee cups, I don't use straws, I drive an electric car. <laughs> Uh, I have solar panels on my houses, and I also have geothermal in one of my houses as well solar um I try to keep my carbon footprint small. I'm involved with the plastic uh coalition, and I know that there's other things I do too but yeah I can't. well yeah. but i I you know I tweet i instagram I always if I'm number one on a call sheet at a TV show or a movie i Ask them to go green in craft service yeah. as well as get
1: bottles for everybody so that we they can have you know reusable bottles with because sometimes on set the amount of plastic people use is ungodly. I mean it's, it's really intense, totally, it's insane. <laughs> and so what we try to do, even when I'm on set, even though I don't really have the means to buy bottles for everybody or anything. I'll make sure they have water at Crafty and I'll make sure that, you know, I'm encouraging people to bring their own bottles because yeah, it's just the amount of plastic that, and once you see it, it's like, you can't unsee it. (laughs) Listen, it's been pushed into my mind since birth. So I, (laughs) so I'm the same way.
0: Hi, Jenny. Hi, Shira. How's it going? Ah, you know, just a crazy busy day here in D.C. Well, it's lovely to talk to you here from New York. It's weird not to be in the same place. It's totally weird, but thank God we have Skype, am I right? For people listening who don't know, Shira is my co-founder and the chief marketing officer of Wonder Media Network. Shira, as you know, this season of Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. How has Skype changed the way that you work? Well, we're talking right now, which is great. I'd love to see your face at the end of such a packed day. So I just feel like optimized for better debrief sessions. Skype has just made everything feel a little bit easier and a little bit friendlier. Skype is software that enables the world's conversations. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and audio calls, whether they're one-on-one or for groups. You can also send instant messages and share files. Special thanks to Skype for sponsoring this season. I should also note that while Skype enables conversations like the episode you're listening to right now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Skype as a company agrees with what's being said. Those opinions all belong to the people who are speaking them. So let's get back to the episode.
2: Bye, Jenny.
0: Bye,
1: Shira. When was the first time you felt aware of your gender?
2: God, that's so interesting. Wow, because I was such a tomboy. I mean, I look back at pictures of myself and what a little ass kicker I was. (laughs) It was so awesome. I was just so... I had short hair and like, you know, I was just had no, I was not apologizing for anything. I was a big tomboy. I was really good at sports. Um, And then definitely something changed. There's no question about it. You know, I think maybe one of the times that really sticks out in my mind was I put on a bathing suit. I was at camp, I think I was 12. And I put on a bathing suit and I went out to the pool and a lot of boys looked at me, you know, In that way. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening? And that was, I think, one of the first times I was aware of Mm -hmm. my gender. There's no question that growing up with two brothers who didn't really treat me like a girl was something that ultimately kind of stood me in good stead, I think, growing up in a man's world. Because I think that I always assumed to a degree that we were equals, Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense? No,
1: that does make sense. I think it was Amy Poehler said in her book, "If you want to see women who are self possessed, not apologizing, scrappy, strong, tough, just watch like girls under the age of seven or eight play." Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. Like sometimes yeah. I see pictures of myself under those ages, and I'm like, "Oh my god, who is that girl?" She's yeah. just like so comfortable in her body. And it's like, you know, we're obviously so bombarded by diet culture and messaging as women that yeah. there's a certain age when we start to pick up on the other women that surround us as issues around messaging, dieting. We start, I mean, I remember like reading People magazine and there would be an ad for a hair or a makeup thing or a workout you could do to get your summer body. And we must have been maybe like 11 or 12. And I just remember reading it and genuinely believing that like, if I got this ocean sea salt spray at the beach in the summer, my hair would be curly and luscious and blonde and like look like these ads. And I just didn't even understand that they had gotten hair and makeup for six hours before starting. And that, you know, This woman who had flat abs from these dumb, like, (laughs) workouts in this People magazine was starving herself or whatever. It's like you just, you're so inundated with it, no matter how much your families are
2: trying to protect you from it. It just happens. Get it. Oh my God, totally. Yeah. Seventeen magazine was my first too. Yeah. (laughs) Horrible. And I remember reading about diets and I remember Mm -hmm. reading about, and I, that was when, I mean, the messaging is You're fat. Yeah. I mean, the message is you're fat and you're ugly. I mean, there's that joke, and I love this joke so much. Why do women wear makeup and perfume? Because they're ugly and they smell bad. (laughs) (laughs) And really, like, that's the message. And the message is when they're like, get your summer body, you know, do this six days to, you know, lose six pounds. The messaging is no matter what size you are, that you're not the right size. Right. And so, and I definitely remember doing that shit when I was younger. God. Yeah, That 17 magazine. It's evil, and I it's mean, evil because it, it's selling to a seventeen-year-old girl. It's like start early, ladies. Exactly, crazy, and
1: it's a promise. And not for nothing, but that is the time in your life where you know you're young and your body is growing, and they're literally suggesting changing your body before you're even fully done growing. Totally. And it's really, really sad that so many girls develop eating disorders so young, based on that messaging. What is your relationship with religion, and is it a part of your life, and did you grow up with it in any way?
2: I didn't grow up with religion. Um, I mean, I definitely, we sometimes went, my dad was Episcopalian, and so we went to church like, I don't know, seven times, and I never went to temple, even though my mother was Jewish, but we, uh, sometimes when my mother married my step father. uh, We did celebrate Passover for a few years. And I really like that. Religion and God was never discussed in my family ever, ever, ever. I would say that my mother's an atheist, but I definitely think I'm spiritual for sure. I have been pursuing a path of like a deeper spiritual journey for a long time. And I know there's no question that I believe that there's something much bigger than me that I go to for help, that I literally ask for help and I feel like I receive it. So I always say like, you know, when the sun rises in the morning and, you know, sets in the afternoon, I know I don't control that. So I know that there's something else that's bigger than me. And that gives me solace. That mm-hmm. helps me feel like I'm not in control of everything and that there's some kind of a plan that I don't know about. And mm-hmm. that honestly... It's it really, it helps me to feel less scared and alone when I feel scared and alone. Um, and I do. I feel like when I, I feel like a spiritual path, whether it's meditating or asking for help is definitely part of my journey and a very important part of my journey too. Yeah. Well, what about you? I mean, do you think that was, do you think spirituality, do you think anything like that in terms of? I
1: mean, we weren't raised with any like, specific religion, I, you know, obviously you know that. And, I, yeah, I, I never had a connection to any sort of organized religion ever, ever. And I think I do feel solace and comfort in nature and how old it is. Yeah. Um, Which is, I think, part of the reason why it's so disturbing to me to watch it being destroyed. Although... Really, when you think about it, nature's going to be here much longer than us. I mean, what we should be worried about is our existence on this planet, not really nature's existence on this planet, which weirdly makes me feel more comfortable. It comforts me because I think to myself, this nature was able to carry us for so long and we have to respect it. But it's always going to be here, you know, kind of. I don't know if that's, like, the science of it. But I definitely think there's spirituality in nature. That's probably the most. I mean, I just got rocked by the ocean today. Yeah. And it's just so powerful. And it sort of makes you feel weirdly comforted. And, like, I think just in terms of hope and hopefulness, like, I, as a last thing to say, there's been a lot of times, especially this year, when I felt super hopeless in terms of our lives, our, our government and what's going on in the world and global warming and everything. And what my therapist actually said to me, which by the way, I think therapy is like religion. Everyone should go to therapy and yeah. there would be a lot less turmoil in the world. I agree. And I know it's not, you know, it's expensive and it should be free for everybody yes. because it should be a, a necessity. But anyway, she said, you know, the story's not over. You can't jump to the end of the story yet and have no hope. The story is still going on and it's going to continue going on long after you're here. So just do the best you can in this lifetime, you know, and that's kind of your hope. There's going to be people down the line that are making big changes and it takes piece by piece this sort of building. So I don't know. That made me feel better. Yeah. I don't really know why. Yeah. <laughs> because I think what, what can happen is you can move into despair when things are this dark right. in your world. Right. And that's not despair. Despair is the end of a story. Right. And we're in the middle at the beginning, you know?
2: You know what I also think is that when I think about the environment, um, and I know there's a lot of other issues that are really important to you and, and to me, but we're focusing on that right now. And that is... You know, when you think about environment, it's like what about my the environment that I'm creating? Like mm-hmm. what about the the stuff I'm putting out in the world, whether it's like being nice to the barista that gets me a coffee and and being nice to the person on the subway who needs help with their bags, like that's part of my environment too and I'm responsible for putting good stuff out into the world, whether it's a good movie or like it's a an ad to help support are not using plastic or or it's just being kind to the people that you come into contact with every day, that's also part of not polluting your environment. And mm-hmm. I think that that's something that helps me to remember this too. What I also feel is that we are here on earth and it is beautiful. A lot of it is beautiful and it's our responsibility to wrap our arms and, and celebrate its beauty and to enjoy it.
1: Yes, definitely. It is. And like, look- I don't know, going into nature as much as I possibly can is definitely important to me. Me too. Oh, goodness. Well, I think that's it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Web of Women. This month is all about that second link in each interview chain. Then April will be about the next step beyond. Next week, my friend Jing Cao gets to interview someone from her web of connections. My name is Danielle Guian I am the director of organizing and policy for Los Angeles Unified School District Board of Education. For the next episode in Sosi and Kira's chain, Kira gets to pick someone from her life who she wants to talk to. Stay tuned for episode nine to hear their conversation about politics, gender, religion, and identity. I'm so excited to test out this new kind of podcast with you. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also find us on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMNmedia. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brewer. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music and to the women of the web for making this show possible. Talk to you next week.